Republicans are in charge of Missouri's legislative and executive branches, but that doesn't mean people should expect four years of peace and harmony. One of the people in the middle of some of the state's biggest policy fights is State Senator Ryan Sylvie. The Republican from Kansas City joins us next to talk about the way forward in the Missouri Senate. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in St. Louis is... A very frazzed Joe Manis. And joining us from our St. Louis Public Radio studios in Jefferson City, we have as our special guest today... Senator Ryan Sylvie. I, I didn't realize you were throwing it to me there. <laughs> People get thrown off by that sometimes. Um, I, I, mean, I couldn't believe this when I looked it up. You, it's actually been about three years since you were last on the show. Time flies when we're yeah, having it's, fun. It, it has been a while. It was down in the uh, in the basement offices or the first floor offices back then. Now so. you get to see uh, the fifth floor office, which I'm not sure how often senators go to. Um, I'm guessing. It's the first time I've been up here, actually. It, 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 I have to say. It's pretty nice. I used to work on the first floor office as a Capitol reporter, and some of those offices left a lot to be desired, but it is a lot a lot of steps to go up. Yeah, yeah. stairway to heaven. I don't want to go there, but yeah, it's 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 very <laughs> it, 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 we will that's for another show. Yes. So we're taking a bit of a pause from our St. Louis mayoral podcast because there's been a lot going on in Jefferson City the last few weeks and the senator has been kind of in the middle of a, a, a lot of what I would consider important discussions about not only policy, but the future of the Missouri Senate. And that's the, the, the first topic I want to talk about. We're now in a situation where Republicans control the executive and legislative branch. You were in the House when a similar setup was, was going on with then-Governor Matt Blunt in the legislature, when the legislature had fewer Republicans. I want to get a sense of what it's like to be in the Republican majority right now when the margins are are so big and it seems like there's there's there is some disagreement on policy and procedure. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's an exciting time uh, because um, the policy um, is certainly being <clears throat> certainly being driven uh, by our party. Uh, but there but that doesn't mean that we're all in agreement all the time. And so, um, it, it creates some interesting friction at times because people, I think, just assume that when you wear a party label that everybody is is a clone, uh, and that's that's really not the case at all. So you know, it's it's there there are some uh, some learning curves going on for sure. And well, in fact, that I'm glad you brought that up because you have been seen as one of the uh, senators who at times has been either at odds with leadership or at least had some differences of opinion on different things, and there's been some. Uh, blowback over that. Um, is it? Do you see it the fact that the Republicans have such huge majorities that now you have all these subsets, uh, or or that there's different aims from people who are from rural or suburban? Parts yeah, no, of the I state? think I think 
I think it does directly relate to the sheer numbers of Republicans in the legislature right now. Uh, you know, the district I represent is about 54% Democrat, and it was the same in the House. My House district was a microcosm of that, about 54%. And when I first got into the House, um, we had a slim majority, uh, just a few seats. And at that time, those of us who were able to win these swing districts that, that were not just going to go Republican no matter who was on the ballot, um, we were treated very differently at the beginning because without us, uh, there wouldn't have been a majority. But now, because the majority has swung so far, it's it's almost like we're on the other end of that spectrum now. And, and there are those uh, in the majority that look at, at those of us that hold swing seats like, well, we don't need you anymore. So you're not pure on this issue or that issue and you just cause problems. And, and so it's like this totally, you know, I haven't changed <laughs> at all, uh, but the, the makeup of the legislature has changed. And so therefore my position on the pendulum has changed as the pendulum has continued to swing. So how do you see things that say the rest of this session? Do you think that uh, ideological split between um, uh, rural conservative Republicans and those like you who are from swing districts, do you think that's going to be exacerbated over some issues in the next few weeks? Um, I think you'll continue to see some differences, sure. Uh, you know, I, but I think it's also important to know that you know most of the time it's not uh, that we are completely against whatever uh, agenda is coming out of you know, if you want to call them the rural conservatives, uh, I think is what you just called them. It's it's that we want to see. Um, you know, we want to find consensus there. It's not that we're just dead set against everything they want to do. That's that's certainly not the case. I mean, we all still, in a philosophical overarching sense, we're all still Republicans. Um, I think we just, because of our experience and, and constituency, um, apply that philosophy differently. What do you think of the new governor, Eric Greitens, so far? I think that in the beginning, a lot of uh, Republican legislators were excited that he was coming on board because he was going to sign on a lot of, uh, you know, longstanding priorities. But I think that there were some legislators who were kind of irked by the way he campaigned and are not really used to his style. I don't know if you've had a chance to talk with him, but what's been kind of your impressions of him so far? You know, um, I, I haven't had that much interaction with him. Um, I was able to sit down with him one-on-one uh, -on -one prior to his inauguration uh, just to kind of you know, a little bit of a get to know you uh, situation. But um, I mean, he's obviously a very driven personality, um, you know, and for someone who's not been in politics before, um, it's it's going to be interesting to watch that progression and that evolution because um, you have to build consensus along the way. You can't just dictate things and, ev and expect everyone to fall in line. So, um, I'm hopeful that as he continues to grow as a governor, as he continues to grow as a politician, uh, that he will reach out to us uh, in a more collaborative fashion. Are, are there examples of where things have not been collaborative so far between the governor and, let's say, the Senate, or at least with you? Well, um, you know, I would say uh, during the right to work debate, um, there was a, an issue um, that came up during the discussion that uh, Senator Eigel and I had a, a discussion on the floor that led to me crafting an amendment, um, which I was able to propose and, and, you know, out of respect for the governor, gave a copy of the language to the to his staff and sent it up to see um, 
you know, if they would go for it or not go for it. Um, I wasn't given very much feedback, uh, you know, other than, no, we're not taking any amendments. And so that's kind of how that bill went down. Um, I think there were eight amendments offered in the Senate, zero adopted. Um, so I'm hopeful that as we get kind of past some of the, I think there's several, several of us are willing to give a pass right now on the issues that have been to Governor Nixon's desk that were vetoed and brought back. Uh, because we've had that debate. We've, we've had that discussion over the years. Um, as we get into new territory, um, new bills, new issues that maybe we haven't had as thorough of a debate on over the last few years, I'm hopeful that, um, that we have a collaborative process and it's not just we are going to accept amendments or we're not going to accept amendments and then leadership is just going to follow through with, with whatever is dictated to them by the governor. I'm, I, I'm glad you brought up right to work because that has been signed into law I know that the there are some unions who are thinking about putting it up for a referendum, which may or may not happen depending on whether they can get the signatures. But I want to ask a, a broader question. What, from, from researching this issue, one of the people who I talked to, Jake Rosenfeld of Washington University, says passage of right to work usually is a lagging indicator of the decline of the political power of labor unions. I'm just I'm just curious from your perspective as somebody who has been supportive of organized labor, who voted against right to work, is 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 the fact that it passed kind of a sign that the that the power of labor's political sway has declined in Missouri and this was only a matter of time before a, a policy like this was implemented. I mean, I think that's probably a pretty fair assessment. I mean, remember the the organized labor portion of the workforce is only about eight percent. So Back in the day, it used to be much, much higher than that. And as um, some of those industries have changed um, over the years or, or gone away in, in some instances, um, you know, by, by necessity, the, the numbers of people in organized labor have, have kind of shrunk. So, I mean, I think that's probably a pretty fair assessment. But when you look at um, that 8% statewide and you shrink it down to focused areas like my area, it's probably significantly higher. Well, I know it's significantly higher than 8%. It's probably closer to 40% uh, of the households in, in my particular district are somehow associated with organized labor. So um, I think they still um, are pretty influential um, in pockets, um, but you've certainly seen a dilution of that statewide. Now, uh, now that the General Assembly is sort of moving on to other uh, anti-labor issues, such as prevailing wage, um, the uh, the job and also the job side agreements uh, on major projects. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that there already is some unrest about that, and uh, one of the contentions I've heard is that well, if they got rid of the prevailing wage, okay, it won't just affect union guys; it'll affect everybody. That many non-union people in rural areas were relying on the prevailing wage to make sure they got a decent pay on public projects. How do you kind of see some of this uh, playing out? Because I'm hearing, you know, predictions that it that basically this whole fight's just going to be driving everybody's um, wages down. And others say, well, maybe that's not so bad. I'm just interested in your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, that one in particular is going to be very interesting because uh, for several years there had kind of been an agreement um, – that while we were debating right to work or paycheck protection, uh, some of these other labor issues, that prevailing wage was kind of set aside and that we weren't going to go there 
and uh, and work on that policy. Now that uh, right to work is passed, um, certainly paycheck protection is probably going to pass. I mean, it's it's one of those issues that have been to the governor, uh, Nixon administration, and, and back. Um, now this prevailing wage debate is coming up, but remember, this is the first time that many of us have debated re- prevailing wage at all. Uh, you know, with term limits and and the turnover. I mean, we haven't debated. I've, I've this is my thirteenth session. I've never had a substantive debate on prevailing wage policy, and so there are several people that think this shouldn't come up and get passed in the very first time we ever debate it, um, and would like to see it slowed down. And and I think that you know there'll probably be pretty significant resistance to wholesale prevailing wage reform. I think one of the bills out there just straight repeals the chapter. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, so I, I I think that will certainly meet um, a fair amount of resistance since we haven't even had this discussion before to then come up and go, okay, well now we control everything, so let's just repeal this chapter. <laughs> like, I think uh, I think that that that'll probably lead to some long discussions. Um, another t- area of, of, of topics that the governor talked about as state of state uh, was ethics. And he mentioned three pretty specific things he wanted to see passed. One was a lobbyist gift ban. Another was a, an extension of the quote-unquote revolving door when law, uh, lawmakers can become lobbyists. The other was a uh, statewide term limits initiative, which would require a statewide vote. My feeling about these particular proposals is they ran into a lot of opposition last year in the Senate, and it's going to be a challenge to get some of these things passed. Um, I, I want to ask a two-part question. What is kind of your thoughts on some of the, the ethics-related bills that the governor wants to, wants to pass, and what do you have as far as a prognosis of, of their ability to get through the Senate? Well, certainly I think on the gift ban there's probably um... – there's probably enough support for that to get to get something done. I would think. I mean, I, I don't think any of us uh, run for office uh, with the idea, you know, that hey, we're now we're just going to come down here and, and get a bunch of gifts. I mean, I think I think that there will be enough people that are probably willing to to work on on that type of a bill. And you know, frankly, too, I think for your listeners, I mean, most people hear, uh, you know, gifts from lobbyists, and. I don't, I don't know what they think. I think it's Rolex watches or televisions or, or what. But, I mean, most of it is, you know, meals. You know, you go out to, to, to dinner to discuss something and, and uh, someone else picks up the check. And so that, that is a gift. Um, I think most of us are willing to, to let that whole system go if, if that's going to, to be a step in the direction of restoring, uh, restoring trust in government. Um, the lobbyist revolving door ban being extended because remember we have one now yes um, which we passed last year um, which which I thought was pretty solid uh, to be honest um, to to do what the governor has said which is make it as many years as you've been in office means that you can't lobby for that many years um, I, I think that's a good bumper sticker I don't think it's a good policy um, I, I think it's it's probably got constitutional problems of equal protection Um you know, I, I just—it it seems silly to me if the whole—if the whole idea is, um, especially since we have term limits in the legislature, right? I mean, if the whole idea is you shouldn't be able to immediately capitalize on your relationships. Um, if I've been in for, you know, after this year, I've been in for 13 years. I mean, 13 years from now, like because of term limits, 
the people that I know personally will be long gone. Um, I, making it that long, I think, is, again, more bumper sticker than, than actual policy. Another thing that I think that there was some conflict between the Senate and the governor's office was this whole issue of whether the lawmaker should be paid more, which is something I think comes up every couple of years. I, if you've been in the legislature 13 years, I think you've had to deal with this issue probably four or five times now. And um, it, it was interesting for me because usually this is kind of a blip on the legislative radar. It either gets passed or not passed, and we kind of moved on. Governor Greitens made this a huge deal by using the tool of social media to attack his fellow Republicans, which I found to be extraordinary, to be honest. I don't remember Nixon ever doing that. I don't remember Matt Blunt doing that because social media wasn't really a thing then. So broadly, what did you kind of make of that situation? Because I know you were one of the people that tried to recuse themselves and there was like an hours long discussion and that's kind of inside baseball that I'm not super interested in going into, but sure. I am interested in kind of like your reaction to the governor getting involved in something like that. Sure. Um, you know, I think certainly um, the governor has the right to come down and and provide input on, on any of the issues uh, that he wants to that we're debating. And, and certainly I think we would welcome that. Um, the way that this particular instance was handled, at least the reports that come out from some of my colleagues um, of meetings that they had with him, um, were not the most productive. So um, perhaps the way, you know, he handled them personally one-on-one, um, you know, maybe he'll learn from that and and uh, and be more collaborative again in the future. But the, the, the whole debate, the whole discussion was, was pretty fascinating because we had some members that actually um, voted – against rejecting the pay raise because they really feel that keeping the compensation low uh, limits the diversity of the legislature. Um, you know, I've been down here 13 years. Um, the pay has in- changed one time since I've been down here. No cost of living increases uh, along the way. It's just one time it's changed. So as costs continue to go up uh, for everybody in the market, um, if you don't keep compensation, if compensation doesn't keep pace with that, then you basically end up in a situation where the only people who can afford to run for the legislature are retirees um, who are drawing a retirement income or people who are independently wealthy uh, to begin with. Um, and cutting out that whole middle section of society um, is something that I think some members are wary of. And. I have to ask this question, as, as I kind of alluded to in, in the question. You have you have voted on this before, and you recused yourself this time because you said it was a conflict of interest. Why did you decide right. to vote on the prior resolutions but not this one? You know, it was fascinating, actually, how that developed. Um, the uh, Over the years, you know, when you come in, you're just resolutions put before you, and, and, and you're told you have to vote on it by leadership or whatever, and you just you just do it. Um, and, and I've always voted against it, to be honest. Um, but this time we had a member, um, Senator Eigel, who had never been in politics before, never been a senator. Uh, he looked at it with, I guess, a fresh set of eyes, if you want to call it that, because he stood up and gave a speech and was like, hey, this is a conflict of interest. If I vote on this, I would put money in my pocket, um, directly in my pocket. I mean, it's direct deposit into my bank account. Um, and it was not, it was... It was a fresh perspective that I had not considered before, and, you know, I thought it made sense. So now, I, now didn't that violate – doesn't that violate some state law as well as, as um, 
voting on something that affect that raises your pay while you're in office? Isn't there a prohibition against that, or am I wrong? Well, so there's a constitutional provision that sets up this whole process, and the Citizens Commission is appointed by the governor, and they recommend what the compensation for everyone should be. If that comp- if if that recommendation is not rejected by two thirds of each house of the General Assembly uh, by February first, I guess is what it was this year. Some by some date, it's like thirty days in the legislative session. If it's not rejected, then it automatically goes into effect. Um, the first time, if I remember back back in like '07, probably um, the House passed a resolution to reject it. The Senate never did. And that was the one pay adjustment that I've seen. It was either 07 or 09. And there was another extenuating circumstance where they tied it to judges pay, which I don't think it was that was the case this time. But again, that's more minutia than our listeners probably want to sure. hear. So continue. Sure. sure. So, you know, when when um, six people had gone ahead of me, you know, Senator Eigel being, I think, the first and he made that case. And as someone who had never voted on a pay raise before, um, one, it was, it was interesting. It was like, okay, well, I can see that why you would say that was a conflict of interest. So then five other people, I think after him went and, and recused and nobody, there was not a problem with any of them. Um, it was when I recused that, uh, leadership objected to my ability to do so after six other people had already gone. And then, uh, that's what led to a multi-hour debate on whether or not I had the right to do that. Um, ultimately, I was able to win the vote of the body. I think it was 1915 or 1914. Uh, senators voted in favor of allowing me to determine for myself when I should recuse or when I should not recuse. Um, but that was kind of that debate in a microcosm. Well, another issue where I think you're at odds with some of your leadership and not just the governor is this legislation, which I think is 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 known as Senate Bill five, which 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 is strangely is also known. That is also the, the nickname for another major piece of legislation that passed a couple of years ago that basically restricts class action lawsuits and affects pretty substantially the, the Missouri Merchandising Practices Act, which is often used often within the attorney general's office and which has been in place for 1967 according to the springfield news leader article i was looking up on my phone i I have seen your comments in the press that you are you are very much opposed to to changing this kind of just go over your stance on it and 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 what brought you to that your conclusion that this wasn't a good piece of legislation you know, um, there's a number of things about this bill that are concerning to me. Um, you know, the Merchandising Practice Act was put in place to protect uh, citizens from unscrupulous actors, uh, from people who would defraud them, sell them faulty products. Um, it gives them a recourse to to sue and recoup uh, damages from them. Um, it's been in place for over 50 years. Th- this law, um, this bill basically repeals it. I mean, it it doesn't just straight repeal it like the prevailing wage bill we were talking about earlier, but the changes that it makes uh, to the bill make basically make it um, make it ineffective, completely ineffective. Um, and and I just don't think that's good for consumers. I mean, I I don't think that we were sent down here um, to 
pass legislation that's bad for our constituents because it might be good for certain employers. I just don't think that's that's really what I'm supposed to be doing. Are you implying that particular uh major Republican donor is one of the key figures in lobbying for this? Well, I mean, it's, that's no secret either. I mean, I think it was in that same article that, that Jason just mentioned. But um, yeah, I mean, there's a pending suit against Tamco. Um, they make roofing supplies out of Joplin. Um, the way that, the, that Senate Bill 5 changes some of the procedure involved in bringing a suit um, could, in fact, get their suit dismissed. Um, which is concerning. I mean, certainly, I think if, if we're going to discuss this bill, um, I'm going to want to make sure that there's a clause in there that says no, no procedural change can be applied retroactively. Um, but um, furthermore, the, the case that they have pending, um, they, they made some shingles, uh, a church put them on, uh, church uh, roof starts to leak. It was a 30, they were 30 year shingles, supposed to have a 30 year warranty. Roof starts to leak, they get damaged. Um, they bring suit under Senate Bill 5, if this were to pass, not only could they possibly get that case dismissed, but in the future, if, a, if their shingles were faulty and they caused water damage, uh, under the new bill, you would only be able to sue to recoup the actual cost of the shingles. You couldn't recoup any of the damage that were caused by the faulty product to begin with. Uh, so I think that's a real problem. I don't think that I don't think that's good for consumers. If 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 a business uh, creates a faulty product and sells it to you, and it causes damage, then I think you should have a right to recourse. And I think that 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 recourse should be uh, in the judicial branch, which is why that whole section of our constitution exists. Now we're referring here, as far as listeners know, to David Humphreys, who's the uh, major official of Tamco. Um, are you and other legislators getting a lot of um, direct lobbying by either him or representatives uh, for him regarding <laughs> this legislation or others in recent I, weeks? So, I, sort of I what's the climate on this? I don't get lobbied by him at all. I mean, he, he tried to get me thrown out of office, so he doesn't exactly call me up and ask for favors. Yeah, for our listeners, <laughs> uh, David Humphrey spent tens of thousands of dollars to – Gave tens of thousands of dollars to the senator's Democratic opponent. I've been tracking his money for a long time. I think that's one of the first times he's actually given money to a Democrat, maybe I think ever. it's the only time that that anybody's ever found that well, I'm aware of. Not not to disparage your opponent, but considering you won 60-40, he might as well have set that money on fire, basically. But con- but continue, uh, um, Senator. Well, I mean, I th- so, I mean, obviously there's a concern there. Um, a specific concern about that bill, but but the bill has broad consequences. I mean, beyond just one lawsuit and, and one donor, um, and, and I just don't think it's good public policy moving forward. What what's the cli- what's the climate on this bill? Is this something that you think has legs and that you're you're concerned about it, or is it something that you think that some cooler heads may be prevailing? Well, I mean, hopefully a little of both. I mean, it's it's sponsored by the president pro tem of the Senate. So typically anything sponsored by the the president pro tem of the Senate is going to have legs, um, you know, by virtue of him being the leader of the chamber. Uh, That said, um, you know, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, that cooler heads will prevail and that the bill will either um, just get laid on the informal calendar never to return or that it uh, that at least there will be some major changes to it. Uh, my suspicion is if there aren't major changes to it, um, 
that it will be filibustered by a, a uh, pretty strong bipartisan group. Would you be part of that filibuster? 100%. Well, we'll be following that bill pretty closely, but we also wanted to talk about something that you are supporting, and that is an alteration to a bill that I think passed in 2009, which right. would basically bar the state from complying with Real ID, which is a federal law. I want to make sure I'm describing that correctly, but I remember that debate pretty vividly, and the consequence of that 2009-ish bill is that we're running close to a deadline where Missouri driver's license may not be able to be used to get on planes anymore. Right. Uh, I, I want to make sure that that backdrop is correct, because I know at the time you were speaking out against this pretty strongly, and I think that you're trying to figure out an elegant solution to this, basically. So Sure. So actually, if, if you if you search on YouTube, uh, my name and Jim Guest, uh, who was the sponsor of the original bill in 09, you can hear audio of the debate between me and Jim Guest on the floor of the House. I, I, I remember uh, Jim Guest very well. He was a, a fascinating legislator for, right. from, from no, the northern part of the state. But right. He was actually my grandparents' state rep at the time. But, well, there you go. But... Uh, but anyway, in 2009, we passed a bill that prohibited um, the implementation of the federal Real ID program, which is the Real ID program came out of uh, the 9-11 Commission. In 2005, they recommended that we um, standardize the process by which people obtain driver's licenses in this country. Um, it's not a national ID, but it is a national set of standards that they want all of the states to, to follow. Um, so... There was significant pushback. Um, people felt like it was a violation of the Tenth Amendment. People felt like it was a violation of privacy. So we had a bill that prohibited implementation. I actually sat on the committee where the bill was heard, and, and when the bill came out of committee, it had an element of choice in it, which basically said, if you individually have a privacy concern, you don't have to get this ID. We're not going to make everybody's ID comply with the Real ID Act, but if you don't and you want to comply with the Real ID Act and you want to get a Real ID license, you would have the ability to do so. When that bill got to the floor, that language got stripped out. It was back to a straight prohibition. So here we are now, fast forward to 2017. I've offered essentially the exact same language as, as a compromise to say, look, um, in January of next year, the federal government will not let Missouri driver's licenses pass as valid identification to get on an airplane. I think that our citizens should have the individual right to decide whether they want to participate in this program and have an ID that complies or whether they don't. I'm not trying to force anyone to do it, uh, but I'm also not trying I'm also trying to provide an avenue for those of us who don't share those concerns. Well, I m one of the questions I've had about this entire situation is I think most of Missouri at this point probably has a driver's license that is not compliant with real ID. Are we going right. to have to get a new driver's license if your bill passes? Or is there going to be kind of a timetable when when we could do this? Because if the answer sure. is, is A, then you're going to have literally thousands of people at the fee offices all across the state trying to make sure these IDs are in compliance. What, what is the situation sure. there? So the history of the implementation going back to 05 is that they've set deadlines and then they've given extensions and then they've set deadlines and they've given extensions. Um, I've had conversations with people at Homeland Security at the department that um, they, they have assured us that if we pass a bill that shows that we are working towards implementation, 
that we would be granted another extension until we could get that in place. Um, so you wouldn't have to run out by January and get a new driver's license. Um, hopefully, and I don't know if they would structure it this way or not, but I think we would probably ask for it to be structured in such a way that as your license expires and you get the new one, you know, under, under your normal time frame, uh, that that would be good enough. So they've done something similar. I, I think uh, 44 states currently comply, first of all. We're only one of six. Um, Pennsylvania um, is, is in the process of passing uh, legislation through their legislature to comply, and they've been granted an extension uh, pending passage of that legislation. So I think that we would be treated very much the same. I mean, if we don't do it, doesn't this then make it so? I mean, like I have a a, um, a passport, but mm-hmm. of course people don't always want to carry their passports with them when they're just taking a short trip to Chicago. And they're or expensive. They're over a hundred dollars to get. Yeah, too. but my my point is is that uh, people would have to get that if they're going to do any sort of flying. If this doesn't pass, is that oh, is, oh yeah. is is that even entering into the discussion? Oh, yeah. No, it's a crazy situation. I mean, first of all, you would have to incur the expense of getting a passport, whether or not you wanted to. Secondly, the people who are trying to stop Real ID or the people who are opposed to my solution uh, express privacy concerns. But you're basically going to drive people to a an actual national ID, right? If they have to go get a passport, they're going to turn over more information to the federal government than you would turn over to the state for a driver's license. So it's a completely counterintuitive argument to say that people shouldn't have the ability to make this decision themselves. I guess as we kind of wrap up here, I want to just ask a a broader final question. You know, one of the things I noticed during the the time of all Republican rule in the mid-2000s is Republicans were able to get a lot of bills passed, but they eventually kind of descended into some some pretty bad infighting on a lot of issues. It, it seems like, at least this year, the Republicans are going to be able to pass a lot of things that they weren't able to pass under Nixon. But I, I'm wondering, from your perspective, do you foresee a similar scenario occurring where after they pass their initial slate of legislation that infighting is going to return. It could be detrimental to long-term Republican rule in Missouri. Well, I mean, obviously, as, as a Republican, I hope not. Um, but you, you're, you're accurate in your assessment of what happened the last time. So hopefully we learn from those mistakes. And, and once we do this initial kind of push of things that we wanted to get Nixon to do that Nixon wouldn't go along with, once we get that out of the way, I hope that we proceed uh, cautiously and collaboratively so we don't find ourselves uh, in that same boat as we did back um, in the last half of the uh, Governor Blunt associate, uh, administration. Well, we want to thank you for, for coming on the show again. We'll have to make sure the next time is not three years from now, although you'll be ending, you'll basically be entering the end of your legislative service, so you may have some interesting things to say by although then. Although maybe he'll be running for some major office then. Who, who knows? I, I, I predict that he's not going to let us in on those plans on this show. Is that fair to say? <laughs> well, maybe Time later. will tell. <laughs> time will, time tell. will tell. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how can we follow you on Twitter or anywhere else on the World Wide Web? Um, at Ryan Sylvie, uh, all one word, R-Y-A-N-S-I-L-V-E-Y on Twitter, and uh, Sylvie for Missouri on Facebook. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long. So long. So long.